Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series. Actually, we're probably, I, I would say we're in the last quarter. Uh, I don't know exactly. I haven't sat down and figured out exactly how many chapters uh, I could do the quick math. But we're getting into kind of the last quarter of this study uh, in First and Second Samuel. Uh, and I know that narrative, uh, sometimes there's long chunks that we're going to read about. And we're looking at a story uh, of a certain person or people, and then we're trying to figure out what God is doing in their lives and how can we apply that to our lives. So, I mean, it's a lot of fun, uh, but there's a lot more reading and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and we see that in the Old Testament a lot. And so First and Second Samuel, we've been doing this for a while, and we got a little bit longer, but we are kind of, we can see the finish line out there. If you're a runner and you can see that finish line, even if it's in a distance, you know that, hey, uh, we're getting close. And yet I really truly feel that God has been teaching us some incredible lessons uh, that we can apply to our lives, how each one of us is truly a leader, no matter what you do, uh, you, you know, you are a leader, you're a leader in your family, you're a leader at your work, you're a leader in your neighborhood, and we've been learning about lessons from leaders through First and Second Samuel. And today we are in Second Samuel chapter 15, where David, uh, Pastor Dave, ended up preaching last week. We're going to pick up there at verse 13, and we're going to go through chapter 17, verse 29. So there's going to be a lot of reading, but we really feel that it kind of all connects, and we're really excited about the way uh, that God is going to teach us this morning, what he's going to teach us this morning. The question that Pastor Kevin and I talked about this week as we were getting ready for this service this weekend, uh, he, he and I were doing a little bit of studying together. And we started talking about what is an outdated skill that at one point you really cherished, okay? Maybe you were really good at something that now is not really a big deal anymore, right? The one that stuck uh, in my mind first, I was sharing with the worship team this morning as they were setting up, is the ability to count change, right? To use cash. I hear some people laughing and I see their faces and a lot of the people that are laughing are my age or close to, right? When I go to a place and the bill is, let's say $17 and 25 cents and I, or that's a bad example, $17 and eight cents and I give them a $20 bill and a dime, it blows their mind. They have no clue what to do. Right? I mean, you give this money to this young person behind the cash register and they're trying to figure out why you gave them the dime. Right? And you're like, because I don't want 92 cents back. Right? I want three $1 bills and two pennies. Just put it into your machine. Right? Just type it in. Trust me on this one. So that ability to kind of count change or to use cash, it's kind of a lost art form. Right? Or at least that's one that I thought of. Another thing is remembering telephone numbers, okay? Back in the day, if you wanted to call someone, you had to know their number, right? You couldn't just program it into your cell phone and then dial it off of that, right? Just hit the little thing. So if you wanted to call a buddy, you had to wait for your sister usually who was on the phone already to get off of the phone, right? My sister's shaking her head back there, but it's true. Then you had to remember the phone number, 582-542. And don't accidentally dial the wrong one at that point because then you got to start over. You got to hang up, right? 5426, whatever it would have been. So we were thinking about remembering phone numbers. If you're honest with yourself, how many phone numbers do you know right now? 
Probably not very many. And so that was one of the things we talked about. Maybe it's the ability to drive a manual transmission. How many of you guys like to drive stick shifts? That is actually a lot more than I thought would. How many of you, though, are teaching your kids to do that? Okay, a couple, that's great. I like seeing that, but not many of us are. So with that, Kevin and I went down the road of, of uh, changing your own oil, right? Or checking your tires. Or how many of you guys know, the, the younger generation, how many of them know how to change a tire, right? You know, those are the sorts of things where you're kind of like, unless you're a car guy or a car gal, you just don't learn, right? Some of the other ones we thought about is maybe the ability to write in cursive or read in cursive, right? Uh, one of the things that I brought up this morning, which everybody kind of laughed at, and one person got a little bit hurt uh, over it, was that where do you put a stamp on an envelope? There are probably some people sitting out here today who haven't ever mailed anything. And as we continue to go down the road, the, the, the ability to even address a letter and put a stamp on it, right? And then as we were talking, though, we got to the place where we started thinking about stereos or boom boxes, right? Okay. And, and I think I've talked about my favorite one before. It's a Magnavox. It was dual cassette, had all the balancers on there. Uh, it was yellow, right? And I think in the past, I've even had a picture for it before, but this week we have Kevin's up there. So we'll use that one as an example. But I loved my boom box. When I was in high school, I had a boom box with the dual cassettes, right? And one of the things that I really prided myself in was getting blank tapes and hitting the, re- oh, I see you, ne- you're shaking your head back here. I haven't even told you yet, but hitting record right at the right time to get the beginning of the song. Right. And then just praying that the DJ wouldn't talk over the end of the song. Right. Just keep your mouth zipped until we get through the song. Don't I don't need an outro from you. So that was probably the skill that I really prided myself in. And I wanted people to go, wow, man, you cut these all like we'd make mixtapes and I would get like all kinds of props. How well I did on cutting these. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But that was mine, right? I mean, that was kind of like, but Kevin all of a sudden was like, how about fast forwarding through a song you didn't like? How many of you guys remember that? You had a cassette tape, me and Steve Lee only, uh huh. You get to a, you get to a song you didn't like, fast forwarding through it and stopping right at the right moment, right? So that you're not too far into the next song. Uh, and that was a skill that Kevin said he cherished. So we were like talking about that. We were like, tell me more about this. You know, and he was like, I worked in a Christian, uh, you know, record store. They had CDs, you know, by the time I was leaving, they had CDs, but I mean, I was selling tapes. I was selling, you know, uh, uh, actual records, that kind of a thing. And, and I was so proud of the way that I could fast forward a tape. And so we talked about that for a while and all of a sudden we started thinking, you really prided yourself that you had this excellence in your ability to fast forward things. In our Christian life, I also want to know where I'm going. Like Kevin wanted to know where he was going on that tape, right? He wanted to get to the end of the song, get into the next one. I know who I want to be because of who Jesus is and what he desires for me. And God's word 
tells us so much about that. That's why every week when we get here, we say, okay, God, what do you have for us? How can I look a little bit more like you when I leave here today? Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, right? And, and, and instead of fast forwarding through a song we don't like, how can you and I get to the place where we faith forward? Our lives, everything that we need to do, everything that we think about doing, every action that we take, we need a faith forward button, right? To be able to get through what we're in and look a little bit more like the way our Heavenly Father wants us to look for, uh, to look like. So that when we get to that place, He says, Wow, you're growing. This is great. You're moving forward. I want to be a faith forward man. To know what God would have me do and then to do it, right? Even if it's risky, even if it's costly, even if it's downright dangerous, there's freedom for you and I to live faith forward, right? So like the boombox, we wanted to get good at fast forwarding in our lives. We need to be people who want to get good at living faith forward, We want to do what God does or what he asks us to do and then give the results in our lives that he desires to see, right? We want to move forward in our faith. Now, last week where we left off, just in case you weren't here, uh, last week, David's son Absalom began a rebellion against God's king. There's no other way to look at it. David was God's chosen king. We know he's struggled, we know he's sinned, we know he's made mistakes, but he was put in place by God. And so Absalom uh, is, is, is kind of rebelling against his dad, rebelling against God, and going against God's chosen. We can remember further back in 1 Samuel where David had an opportunity to take out Saul multiple times, the king, who was doing sinful things, and yet he didn't because he didn't want to raise a hand against God's chosen. Well, here we see this uh, son, Absalom, and the rebellion that has started. And sadly, David has shown you and I, we've learned a lot of lessons, lessons for leaders from David in regard to how we should live in our personal faith. And those have been really positive. But it's sad that there was a lack of investment in his family. Uh, and that's one of the things as we study through this, uh, these books, we need to recognize and we need to learn from the negative lessons and do things better. And so that's where we've, we've kind of focused a few different weeks on those sorts of things. So here we have his son in rebellion, not only against him, but also against God. There was a lot of family pain going on in this family. The, the, there was a definitely a re- re- relational rift. Um, you know, and so maybe you come from a family where there's a lot of strife or pain or out, just outright sin involved. Well, that's what was going on here in David's family. Absalom has gathered this group of supporters in Hebron and David gets word that they're coming to Jerusalem with bad intentions. And so today, as we look at second Samuel chapter 15, Verse 13 through 1729, we want to look at how David lives 
in light of all the circumstances that are going on around him, everything that's going crazy as a faith forward man. And so I want to join you uh, today looking at this, being encouraged by Holy Spirit, and hopefully growing into the men and women that God has called us to be. So we're going to start here in chapter 15, verse 13. There are going to be a few where we're reading multiple slides before I talk, because it's a lot of passage today. Uh, and so I want to invite you to hold on. It's going to be a, a lot of reading, but I think that you'll be encouraged by what God has for us this morning. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So let's not forget how Absalom gained these hearts of the men of Israel. Last week, the author told us pretty clearly that he had stolen their hearts, right? Those were the words that the author used. He wanted to make sure he understood. His plan was deceptive. Right? He was deceiving people. It was definitely selfish or self-serving. He wanted himself to be king and he wanted it to happen right now. Uh, and, and really going against God, we gotta look at this plan as, as something that's just downright evil. Right? This is sinful. But the reality is that evil people have often rallied large groups of people throughout history. This isn't the first time. And it won't be the last time. And if you've studied history, if you're a history buff, you know that sometimes evil people come to power. And then they rally large groups of people around them with their deceptive lies. And all of a sudden, all of, all of a sudden something crazy is going on. And you have these evil people leading groups, large groups, to do their bidding. And that's what we see here. That's kind of that, that mob mentality. We see that. It's a real thing. One person decides they want to do something, and then they start gathering people around them like a snowball rolling down a hill, right? It keeps growing, and that's what we see here. Now, one thing we need to remember is is that, and we can't forget, is that David's trouble with his son was prophesied about. Remember back in 1 Samuel, we had Nathan the prophet come to David, call him out on that, uh, actually, it was in Second Samuel, but um, he, he came to him and he said to him that there are going to be consequences for your sin with Bathsheba, right? And, and the prophet Nathan said, this is not going to go well with you. You're going to have issues from it. Actually, in Second Samuel, we're going to fly in that verse, Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 11, 12, it says, thus says the Lord, this is the prophet Nathan talking to David. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For, uh, for you did it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And this prophecy was given to David from Nathan uh, as what would happen because of his sin uh, against Bathsheba and her husband at the time, Uriah, who he had murdered. This, that is evil against David, 
right, is out of his own house. David has a real problem on his hands. And so what do his advisors do here in these first few verses? What do they suggest? So often we've seen David seek the Lord, right? And we've been encouraged by that. He goes to God in prayer. This time, it looks like at least there's nothing recorded, and we don't know why the author wouldn't have pointed this out if he did it, because he's done it so often. But he says uh, to his advisors, what do we do? And his advisors say, we need to get out of Dodge. We need to flee. And that's where those first verses ended, picking up in 15. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. Just stopping briefly there. um, We don't know David's motive or his motivation for sure. However, I do see some faith here. So even if this wasn't a bad or a good decision or a bad decision, maybe it was kind of neutral. Maybe he didn't seek the Lord. Maybe he just heard from his advisors, we need to flee. I do see some faith here. This is kind of faith forward moment number one. We see that he leaves a remnant. Okay? David decides to leave a remnant in his home. He assumes that he will be back or that someone will. And the city is going to survive. And that there may be a battle, but it's going to happen elsewhere. So he leaves 10 of his concubines behind to tend the house. We also know that Jerusalem was meant to be a city of peace. If you're taking notes today, you can write down Psalm 122, uh, verses 6 to 9. But in 122, David's faith in the word of God that, that God would protect the city of Jerusalem. That it would be a city of peace is what God had promised him. And and so again, we see David, even though he may not be making the best decision, he may not have sought the Lord like he had in the past. He's moving forward with that faith foundation that he has and saying, I believe I will return. So I'm going to leave some of my family here. I believe that there could be a battle, but it won't happen in Jerusalem and my family will be safe. Verse 18. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you a wander or make you to wander about with us since I go, I know not where go back and take your brothers with you and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai said to the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives wherever my Lord, the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also Will your servant be? And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook of Kidron 
And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. David wisely lets the whole processional of people pass in front of him. Right? We see him stop and let his group, his people, go by at the edge of the city. Now this allows him to see each person. Who's with me? If David was leading the way out, he wouldn't know who's behind him, right? How many rows of people? How many people are with me? So there was wisdom in what David did there. He sees this group passing by. And as this group is going by, he calls out Ittai the Gittite. And he says, Ittai, you're a Philistine, right? You're in exile. You've only been in the kingdom for a short time. I think it says, he says there yesterday. Obviously, it, it might have been a little bit before that. But basically, you just got here. Why would you go wander with me, right? Now, you remember David, when he was hiding out, David was hiding from Saul amongst the Philistines, right? And the Philistines uh, wanted to go into battle, but they wouldn't let David go into battle. And so again, the Lord preserves David so that David didn't have to fight against his own people. We don't believe that he would have anyways, but what would he have done? So all these years later, this engagement between the Israelites and the Philistines still going on. And David says to Ittai, he's like, hey, why don't you go back? Now, again, we don't want to read too much into that. We, but is he checking out maybe where? This Philistine's allegiance is because remember back, David was living with the Philistines, but he wouldn't have raised his hands against the Israelites, God's people. And again, he was in that predicament, but he was able to get, find a way out here. David's kind of like, I don't want to bring an enemy with me. This guy's been with us. I don't want to bring him with me. So maybe, maybe I will. Give him an opportunity to go back. And if he does, then I won't have that problem with me. But Ittai, in verse 22, swears by God that he will die for David. So here we see faith forward movement again. I think this is number two or three. David exercises faith to take the word of the Philistine that he will not turn on him. Picking up in verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenants of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of, the God, uh, the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, I or here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back into the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you, to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. As his processional is going by, not only did he see Ittai, the Gittite, but he also sees a couple of priests carrying the ark of the covenant. Here we see faith forward movement number four. David exercises great faith to leave the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. 
God's chosen home for the ark. David prioritizes God's will, God's plan over his own, right? He knew God's will and he did it. And God's will was to have his home in Jerusalem and the ark of the covenant to dwell there. Even if that would cost him. He had learned from the past, the past sins of Israel, that they should not use the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm, right? It was said that if the Ark of the Covenant went before God's people, that they would not lose. So how tempting would it have been for David to take the Ark of the Covenant out of Jerusalem with him so that he would find favor in God's eyes or that it would somehow miraculously allow him to win every battle that might lay before him. And yet he didn't. God's will for his home was also David's will for God's home. In other words, God said it, David believed it, and that was enough for him. So even if this costs me, David says, I'm going to leave God's home, the Ark of the Covenant, where he told me to leave it. So he knew God's will and he did it, even if it had cost him. This is a huge faith move. It's also a a huge faith move to leave the priests behind. He doesn't know what Absalom's going to do to them. And he says to the priests, look, hey, I saved you back in 1 Samuel 22. If you, if you are taking notes, you want to write that down, you can go back and look there. David saved them. So they were committed to David. They wanted to go with him. And he says, no, I think the place for you to stay is with the Ark of the Covenant. Right? And there's probably some shrewd leadership here too. We see that spelled out here in these verses. If they stay, they can be the eyes and the ears of Absalom, who's coming in to set up his kingdom, right? And, and we might be able to use these guys down the road to find out, to hear from in the future. Verse 30, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads as they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. The consequence of our sin often causes us, and rightly so, to get emotional, right? To weep to mourn. We've done something wrong. Hopefully we've come to God in repentance and not been caught, but sometimes we don't and we're caught in our sin. The bad situations, the trials, the people's coming at us, all of these things on top of sin, it's not fun and it can cause emotion. And yet we see David moving forward in this emotion He knows that it's part of his life, and it's the reality that's there. And yet when David learns that Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom, we see David do what he's done so often. He prays. He prays to God. Even with all the sin that's in David's life that he's struggled with, that he's repented from, we see a man dedicated to seeking the Lord. 
So I hope here as we're rounding the, maybe the third corner into that final stretch of these books, that we at least know that David was a man of prayer. You and I need to be people of prayer. Okay? And so even if this is your first Sunday here and you're hearing this for the first time, David was a man who sought the Lord when things were going well for him and when he either did things that were wrong or fell into sin or, or was feeling pressed from those around. David sought the Lord. Ahithophel is his wife, Bathsheba's grandfather. So again, we see the sin that he had with Bathsheba. Now, uh, there's a familial connection in someone who is conspiring against him with his son Absalom. He was a key advisor to David at one point. So we don't know what caused this emotion for David or whether it was everything. But he had literally just found out that a guy who was advising him that was the grandfather of one of his wives was now advising his son. And so we don't know for sure that it's just that news, but it could have been that news in addition to everything else. It crushes him. It causes him to get emotional. He seeks the Lord. He prays. And he prays a faith prayer. Look at what he prays. He knows that God's in control, even when there are super smart men, right, Ahithophel, involved in conspiring against him. He knows that God is smarter. And so for faith forward number five, David prays, oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And by the way that he says that, you can assume that David normally would look at what Ahithophel says as wisdom, right? This guy's smart. He knows what he's saying. Jeremiah 8, 9 says, the wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Job 5, verses 12 and 13, it says, He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the schemes of the wily are brought back to a quick end. David prays a very godly thing. Something that you and I need to know. Sometimes in our lives, there are going to be wise people, smart people who are going to come up against us, right? Earthly standards wise, we got some wise people that could cause us problems, that could stand in the way of what the Lord is doing in our lives and in, in, in our communities. And David here gives us an example. He prays to the Lord and says, make the wisdom that this person is about to speak into foolishness. David is asking for a miracle from God. This is David's faith prayer, and you and I can learn a lot from that. You and I can be a people who trust God over the wisdom of this world. Verse 32, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, 
as I have been your father's servant in the time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and to Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Now the story gets uh, kind of exciting here. David runs into another one of his advisors, right? It says he gets to the mountaintop and he bumps into Hushai the Archite. Now this dude was old, okay? He was good. He was solid. This is somebody you want in your camp, but he was old. And so David knows this. And, and look what he says in these verses. He says, you're going to hold me back, right? We, we need to be able to move. We need to be able to move forward quickly. And you might hold me back from getting away or from moving forward. And, and so he's got a mission now for Hushai. David isn't the only star of this faith show in this story here as we read through these almost three chapters. This took big faith for Hushai to go back to the enemy, right? He was with David. He was with God's people. He was moving forward in faith. And yet David was concerned, probably in wisdom, that he might hold him back, but also saw an opportunity to have a man in place, maybe to hear some things. So he sends him back with this mission, and he trusts God, and Hushai becomes this double agent. Let's continue on here in uh, chapter 16. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruits are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. So if you've been with us the last few months, you know the story of Mephibosheth. Okay? And that he comes into the story and out of the story and then into the story for a minute or two and out of the story for a verse. Right? He's in and out of David's story quite a bit. The author of Samuel has shown some style Right by using foreshadowing and other storytelling techniques when talking about Mephibosheth. So quickly, who was Mephibosheth? Again, if you're new or, or you weren't here, maybe you just don't remember, and that's fine. Uh, this was Jonathan's son. Now, Jonathan was the son of Saul, and Jonathan was one of David's best friends. Right, There was a lot of tension there. When David had brought peace to the land, when David was now coming into Jerusalem, becoming the king, 
He fulfilled a vow that he had made to his best friend, Jonathan, a long time before. When he got into town, he said, who's left from the household of Saul? And it was only Mephibosheth. And he took Mephibosheth, who was lame, right? He was lame in both of his feet. That's why he was not out at war when Saul and all of his sons fell. And David took him and he brought him into his home and he elevated him rather than killing him, right? Which would be what the normal predecessor or what would be the normal thing for the king to do from the predecessor. If a a king had taken over uh, from another family, they would normally kill out the lineage of the previous king so that no one would be left. And instead, David in faith says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to bring him into my house. I'm going to elevate him and, 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 and give him a place where he can dine with me, where he can be part of my family because of my relationship and my love for my best friend, Jonathan. He restored all his property to him and everything, right? Now, the property that was restored to Mephibosheth had been put in Ziba's and his family's charge or care, right? And so this would have been a little bit of a demotion for Ziba. Right, so we're just looking here at the history. Ziba would have been demoted when Mephibosheth was put back in control of the land and everything else that would have been from Saul uh, when David did that. Can you imagine how this must have made David feel? This situation that I just read, all the faithfulness and kindness that he had shown towards Mephibosheth to hear that now he had turned on him and was going to support Absalom. It's devastating, right? I mean, this this turn of events. And again, that's where we see David and his emotion. Caring for Mephibosheth was the last really noble thing David had done before he kind of had this spiritual meltdown that we've seen. Mephibosheth's betrayal is another nail in the coffin of the old life that David used to live. David was seeking the Lord. He was praying. He was doing whatever God asked him to do. And then he had entered this. Now, this painful time was also growing David into the man that God wanted him to be. We're going to keep going forward because we got to get through this. There's going to be more about Mephibosheth later. But God again, is going to see David moving forward in faith, and he provides for him. He protects him. And here in this story, we see that he provides uh, food for his men, for the people, through Ziba coming to see him. So God is protecting David even now. Verse 5, when King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of the king, or of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out. You man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. 
Then Abishai, the son of Zurai, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zurai? If he is cursing me because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shammai went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. So this is kind of a crazy story here. This guy, Shammai, right? Who are you anyways? He comes out and he's on a hilltop. He's got the higher ground. But here's all these people. This guy was passionate. He thought David deserved to be stoned. He starts throwing rocks at him. He's accusing David, King David here, of being a man of blood. Now, David was a man of bloodshed in one sense. Back in 1 Chronicles 28, David says this, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house for the rest of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for that building. But God said to me, this is David, Recalling this incident, what God said, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over all of Israel. So God chose to have Solomon, David's son, build a temple instead of David. Because David was a man of war and had shed blood. But that's not what Shemaiah is saying here. We have to make sure you know that there's a distinction. He accuses David of being uh, blood, of of taking out this revenge on Saul, being uh, the blood of the house of Saul. So he's very specific in what he said. David did not shed the blood of Saul or any of his relatives, right? And we know that because we see Mephibosheth in that story where he actually saved him. Saul and his sons did not die at the hands of David. So these allegations that Shammai was throwing out, in addition to the rocks, in addition to the dust, were totally false allegations. We know that by throwing the rocks at him, he was signifying and saying, this man deserves to be stoned, right? And that stoning would be a common penalty for sin back in that day. Abishai actually has the the right to take Shammai's head off, where he says, let me go and take his head off the shoulders. But again, David shows his faith and says, if God has called him to do this, who am I to stop him? David loves God so much that if it's God's will for Shammai to curse him, then he's all for it. He's he's not going to stop that, even though he could have. Then he acknowledges that if it's not God's will for Shammai to do this, then may God reward David with good because he endured this cursing. 
David doesn't take it into his own hands to fix the situation. He trusts God. Either God's allowing this guy to do it for a reason and I need to take it, or if he's not, I trust God that God will bring good out of it. I think that's an example and a challenge for you and I as we move forward. Sometimes we want to take things into our own hands and fix things ourselves, and yet we need to trust God. This is definitely applicable to our lives. Do you and I walk forward in that kind of faith? Do we have that kind of humility to allow for time to pass until God makes the situation right? I know I was challenged by that this week. Picking up in verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. And Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king. Long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? Right? So he's questioning. Uh, Absalom is questioning Hushai. And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Now, Hushai is in place to do God's will in the kingdom of Absalom. David wisely sends him back, says, get back to the town. He gets back right as Absalom was coming in. For fun, uh, if you wanted to, you can go back through verses 16 and 18 and note that Hushai says things that could actually apply to his true loyalty to David. He's careful with his words. It's one of those weird times that a person may not be lying outrightly, but is a a bit double-tongued, let's say, in a good way, right? He's saying things that can be taken two different ways. His loyalty lies with David, but he, he says it in such a way that Absalom might think that he is going to be with him. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go in your father's, into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was if one had consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Now, this is pretty gross stuff. This is, this is sin. This is, it, it's a part that I wish wasn't in Scripture. We could go right past it. Uh, and and, and I, it, is, it, it caused me to think this way uh, this week that I need to be praying that all sin right, would sicken me the way that this does here. But this is definitely a bold move for Absalom, what he does here. It's intended to make a statement, I'm here, I'm in charge, my dad is out, right? And Ahithophel gives counsel to him. And what's kind of weird is at the end of those verses, it says that the counsel of Ahithophel was so good, it was like they were looking into God's word or hearing from God. Now, this, to me, 
seems that this man's word was highly esteemed, probably too highly esteemed. Uh, There's a little too much faith being given to this man's wisdom. And for you and I, we need to be careful not to esteem the wisdom of man too much, right? And some of us might be guilty of even esteeming it to the point where we listen to it over the counsel of God through his word. Then when we look at the counsel itself, what he called him to do, God had chosen David to be king. God had not taken David out of that position. And Ahithophel is calling for Absalom to to, to take a place that was not his, to put himself into a place. This was an egregious act. This was not wisdom, right? Even though it may have been shrewd, it may have been something that other kings might have done, it should not have been something that anyone in Israel had done. Ahithophel continues on with this shrewd counsel in chapter 17, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and I'll throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the sight of Absalom in his eyes and all of the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. Then Hushai, the man who was placed there by David, wisely sending him back, came to Absalom. Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, the time, or this time the counsel of Ahithophel that he has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel will be gathered to you from Dan to Bethsheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you will go into battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even one pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Immediately, we see here that Absalom, or that Absalom hears from Ahithophel what he should do. Go get him now. Well, they're not ready. We can get David. Bring all the men back. And, and, and you'll, you'll defeat your father. 
But Hushai gives a completely different story, a completely different plan. Now, Ahithophel's, if you really just look at this and you think about it from a strategic point, was probably the better plan, right? Go out, just get David, don't kill anybody else, right? We'll take care of this quickly and quietly, and all of Israel will be drawn unto you. So Hushai has to try to disrupt that. He has to give time for David to be ready, time for David to escape. Hushai appeals to Absalom's lack of faith. There is a massive insecurity in his men and ultimately in himself. He says, will this really happen or will David be ready for you? David's a mighty man of war and the men that are with him are great warriors. If you go out now, you're asking for trouble. Why don't we wait a little bit? Let him get a little ways away. We'll draw more people into ourselves. Then we'll go out and attack and kill them all. Right? And there's this distinction between the two that are given to Absalom, these two plans. But David's faith prayer, the one that he had prayed just a few verses ago, that we stopped and talked about, that the wisdom of Ahithophel would look like foolishness, is being answered by God. And it says there, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. God is faithful, and we see that right here. David prays, and God answers his prayer. Finishing out the chapter here, then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight, at the fords of the wilderness. But by all means, pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimez and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over to the brook of the water. And when they sought, had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now, really quick, let's just pause here just for a quick second. This reads like a spy novel, Right? They're sending out help to David. The woman comes and tells them the story. And they were hoping to get away without anybody seeing them. But somebody sees them. And they know they've been seen. So now they go to this house and they hide in a well. And, and the woman lies and says they went over the brook. And, I mean, this is like, this is good stuff here, right? This is setting this up. It took faith on the part of these spies, on the part of the woman who delivered the message, on the part of the woman who hid the spies. They were doing what was right, and yet there was personal risk. So again, in this faith-forward story, we see people applying faith. Do you and I have the personal, or our own faith, our own personal faith, that we are willing to risk personal harm, however that might come to us, for the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
As I was looking for applications this week, my mind went to that, and I pray that that is the way I would continue on. But let's finish up here. After they had gone, the men came out of the well and went and told David and said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan by daybreak. Not one of them was left who had crossed the Jordan. So Hushai's words get to David, Absalom, may decide to go with uh, Hushai's plan instead of Ahithophel's, but we don't know at this point. Absalom could change his mind, so they needed to move. And here we see a faith-forward movement. David goes about the nearly impossible task of getting everybody safely across the Jordan during the middle of the night. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, right, back at the... Back in Jerusalem here, he saddled his donkey and went off to his home in his own city. He set his house in order and he hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Now Ahithophel, we see a total lack of faith in God and God's plan. We see that he's giving this wisdom and advice to Absalom. He's the model of how not to act. So whether it was he was rejected by Absalom or he was shamed because his advice was not taken. Or maybe he could see the writing on the wall. David would probably return. We didn't get him when we could have. And now I will be a traitor. Right? He takes things into his own hands. We see the eventual consequence of a lack of faith in God and his plans. And it's not going to end well for those who oppose the Lord in the end. Without faith we know that it's impossible to please God. Then David came to Maharim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zerai, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Maharim, Shobai, the son of Nahash, from Reba of the Ammonites, and Makir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Bazilei, the Gittite, from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthly vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and for the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And, and so again, we see God providing for David, God, God providing for David as he's moving forward in faith. And we kind of end this week on this cliffhanger. We don't know what's going to happen, right? Uh, we got Absalom coming out. We got David being refreshed. We look at our lives and we see our faith. And how does our faith move forward? in our own foolishness, in our own sin, in our own family, in our own failures. David showed faith, leaving the city because he knew it was God's will and that war would not take place there. Leaving the priest and the Ark of the Covenant behind because he knew that that was God's will, that was God's house. Being cursed and maligned, simply knowing it was possible that it was God's will for him to be cursed, but believing that if it wasn't, that it would be turned right because of what God 
said and not what he did. Believing that God could turn counsel of the shrewd Ahithophel into nonsense. Repeatedly, David asks the question, what does God want me to think, say, and do? And then he did that. He didn't consider whether the decision helped his own cause, but he believed in God's cause, and that made all the difference. And so today, as, as we go into a time of worship, and this week, as we think about this chapter, this, this long chapter, this long story, can we ask ourselves those same things? What does God want me to think, to say, and to do, and to move faith forward? Let's pray.